0: Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast, available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore, episode by episode, this story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This episode is brought to you by Ferguson. At Ferguson, your project is our priority. Whether you're building a new home or working on a remodel, Ferguson showrooms are designed to inspire. Ferguson Associates are experts. They can help with bath, kitchen, lighting projects, and just so much more. And they can help you pick out the perfect products. They can help get your orders facilitated, and they can even manage delivery coordination. They work with builders and remodelers, designers, and homeowners to make sure that every project runs smoothly start to finish. They're going to take care of the details, so you're happy. Book your one-on-one appointment at fergusonshowrooms.com to get started. your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true.
0: Hey, everybody, before we get started, we have a very exciting announcement, which is two plus years into the pandemic, we're finally doing a live stream. Yeah. Uh, it's taken us a little bit to plan one of these. We That's going to happen on March 10th, is when we are having our live stream. And we are calling it stuff you missed in history class feuds. Yeah, we're gonna talk about some
2: rivalries throughout history, and you are gonna get to weigh in on who you think really should win the favor of the crowd and and all of us in terms of who really uh, was correct in any of those given feuds.
0: Yeah, we are doing this on a platform called Looped, and Looped allows us to do some pretty cool stuff, including having people from the audience ask us questions live on video if you're not really wanting to ask a question on video there's also a chat room and we can do a post show meet and greet and the way this works is there's an app where holly and i will each call you we got to do that separately because we're still having a pandemic and holly and i will not be in the same place
2: Yes, so it's kind of a two-for-one. You'll get to talk to each of us individually. It's kind of fun. You will have a little one-on-one video chat, and you'll get to take a selfie during the call. That's a a little extra you can add on if you wish. Uh, And it's a fun way for us to get to chat with you and reach out and do the kinds of things we would do at a live show in person, but with the safety of the internet between us.
0: Yeah, so you can find tickets to this at loopedlive.com. Click on upcoming experiences, and it'll take you over. You can you can click on our show, and you can get your tickets. You can get uh, the Q and A tickets. We will have early bird pricing for the first ten days that tickets are on sale. So that is all the way until March third, and at early bird pricing. Tickets are $12.75, and tickets plus a meet and greet is $29.75. And then the price will go up for the last week, but the tickets are on sale. So again, that is at loopedlive.com, L-O-O-P-E-D-L-I-V-E.com for some live stream tickets. We hope it'll be a grand time.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Way back when I was hosting a show called This Day in History Class, which is a show that still exists. I'm just not on it anymore. (laughs) Uh, I did a five-minute episode on the Nika riots and immediately put it on my to-do list for a full-length episode over here on Stuff You Missed in History Class. Uh, That means it's taken me more than three years to get to that item on my to-do list. Also, somehow my time on this day in history class feels like it happened way longer ago than three years. Yeah, if you had asked me, I would have said five. Yeah, five feels more correct, but apparently not. Uh, This was a riot and then a massacre, in Constantinople in the year 532. And a lot of what happened is pretty horrifying, particularly the way this ended. And yet it wasn't really entirely unprecedented. Large-scale rioting and mass violence were pretty common in Constantinople and in the Eastern Roman Empire more broadly around this time. We've just got a lot more documentation of the Nika riots than a lot of those other incidents, so they've gotten more historical attention.
2: So for a little bit of background, the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire, was established when Emperor Diocletian divided the Roman Empire into its eastern and western portions in the 4th century. The name Byzantine Empire was actually coined in the 16th century. It references the ancient city of Byzantium, which became the empire's capital city of Constantinople. Today, that's Istanbul, Turkey. The people who lived in the Eastern Roman Empire generally thought of themselves as Roman, while people living in what had been the Western Roman Empire generally described those people as Greek. There is some debate over the term Byzantine Empire. It has an established meaning within the field of history, but that's also something of a misnomer that's picked up some inaccurate connotations.
0: By the time Justinian I became emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, a primary form of entertainment in Constantinople was chariot racing at the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome was a racetrack that Emperor Constantine I had expanded and refurbished, making it into a massive public entertainment venue. It could hold as many as 80,000 spectators, although while doing research for this, I saw estimates uh, that were as low as 30,000 and as high as 100,000. So there's, that's a little, it's a big span. <laughs> this, which, though know, it could hold a lot of people. This had a U-shaped track that was about 400 meters long. And charioteers would race around a central island of monuments that ran down the middle of it. That was called the Spina. They usually made seven laps each
2: event. These events were, as you might anticipate, extremely dangerous. Teams of four horses pulled each chariot, making tight turns at speeds of up to 40 miles per hour. The chariots themselves were built for speed, so they did not offer a lot of protection in a crash. The track itself was crowded with horses and chariots, and accidents and deaths were frequent. At the same time, people who managed to win these races had the potential to become rich and famous. Successful charioteers were basically celebrities. But in most cases, charioteers started racing while enslaved. So starting out, they didn't have any choice about whether to race or which faction they raced for. Only the ones who managed to survive ultimately won enough money to buy their own freedom.
0: Beyond being an intense and violent public spectacle, chariot races in Constantinople were also political events. The emperor had a private box that was connected directly to the palace by a tunnel. The Hippodrome was really the only place that the emperor saw the common people and vice versa, and it was essentially the only venue for public demonstrations. The emperor heard petitions at these events, and people shouted out coordinated chants, That was something that had originally been part of the experience at the theater and had kind of carried over into the chariot races. And then
2: there were the factions, the blues, the greens, the whites, and the reds. These may have started out as groups that rented things like horses and equipment for the chariot races, but over time, they had evolved into competing teams with
0: intensely devoted fans. Over the decades, historians have put forth various different ideas about whether these factions had a greater meaning beyond the chariot races. Like, whether they were basically political parties with people choosing which faction to support based on their own political beliefs and objectives and their socioeconomic position— Another idea has been that there was a religious element, like that the Blues were Orthodox Christians while the Greens held beliefs that could have been considered heretical. But
2: some argued that it really was just straightforwardly about the chariot races, with the teams having really vehemently enthusiastic and even zealous fans. Regardless, disputes between these factions could be Astoundingly violent. For example, in the year 501, the Greens attacked the Blues in the amphitheater in Constantinople, killing as many as 3,000 people.
0: But even if these factions really were just about chariot racing with no greater political or religious or economic meaning, they still had a political impact. The two most powerful factions were the Greens and the Blues, and if the emperor publicly backed one of them, supporters of the other were likely to claim that they were being placed at a disadvantage. A lot of emperors tried to be very strategic in which faction they were backing. A few emperors tried to remain neutral, while others, like Anastasius, tried to stay out of the way of the Greens and the Blues by backing one of the more minor (laughs) factions— In his case, he backed the Reds.
2: Anastasius ruled from 491 to 518. His successor was Justin I, who had been born to a peasant family but had gone to Constantinople looking for work at about the age 20. He had joined the Palace Guard, where he rose through the ranks, and he also gained a lot of military experience. But Justin didn't have a formal education or any children, so he brought his nephews to Constantinople to be educated and introduced into political life.
0: One of those nephews was Petrus Sabatius, later known as Flavius Justinianus. Like his uncle, he's described as having humble beginnings, coming from a family of peasants or swineherds. But he was gifted. He learned really quickly. His uncle Justin eventually adopted him, naming him Caesar in 525, and then Augustus and co-emperor in April of 527. When Justin I died on August 1st, 527, Flavius Justinianus became Emperor Justinian I. He was influential all through his uncle's reign. Some accounts describe him as basically running the empire himself while he was Caesar and when he was Augustus.
2: Justinian's wife was the Empress Theodora, who was deeply unpopular. Justin's wife, Euphemia, disliked her so intensely that Justinian put off marrying her until after Euphemia died. That was in about 524. Like Justinian, Theodora was from a working-class family, but that was not really the issue. She had been an actress, which was seen as essentially the same as a sex worker. It was actually illegal for actresses to marry aristocrats. A law Justinian had changed so he could marry Theodora. In some accounts, people's objections to Theodora weren't just because acting was like sex work, it was because she really was a sex worker.
0: Theodora was also about 14 years younger than Justinian, and people didn't think she acted like a proper empress at all. Justinian and Theodora both seemed to have put a lot of value in all the pomp and ceremonial trappings that were associated with being emperor and empress, possibly because of both of their non-aristocratic backgrounds. But beyond that, Theodora took an active role in leadership. She had her own goals. She had her own agenda, She became one of Justinian's primary advisors. She influenced his decisions rather than just trying to support her husband as she was expected to do. She met and corresponded with foreign dignitaries directly herself rather than deferring to Justinian on that. And she directly influenced newly written laws. This included working to pass laws that would protect women's rights.
2: She also tried to temper some of his religious views. Justinian was an Orthodox Catholic and envisioned the empire as one unified Orthodox Christian entity. But Theodora's own beliefs were unorthodox. She was a miaphysite, meaning that she believed that Jesus Christ was one being whose humanity and divinity were united as one nature. The Orthodox belief, on the other hand, was that Christ was one being with two natures, human and divine. And Orthodox Christians saw Miaphysitism as heresy. Theodora was not entirely successful with this. She did convince Justinian to end the empire's persecution of Miaphysites, but not to fully welcome them into the empire.
0: To circle back to those chariot factions, Theodora was also passionately for the blues. Her father had been an animal handler for the Greens. He was nicknamed the Bear Keeper. But he died unexpectedly when Theodora and her two sisters were still children. Uh, A lot of, like, modern accounts, random articles, kind of imply that his unexpected death was the inevitable side effect of being a bear keeper. But according to the historian Procopius, who we will talk more about in a bit, he died of an illness not because a bear attacked him hardy-har-har, which is how the articles that bring this up seem to imply. Uh, Theodora's mother had gone to the Greens for help, and they had ignored her, but the Blues offered her a job, and that earned Theodora's loyalty. Before
2: ascending to the throne, Justinian had also passionately followed the blues. But he seems to have tempered this somewhat after his uncle's death. And we'll get to the role that all of these factions played in the Nika riots after we pause for a sponsor break.
1: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabey.
0: When you shop online at Alienware.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com slash deals. That's Alienware.com slash deals. <laughs> mentioned earlier that the Nika riots are better documented than several other similar, but maybe smaller outbreaks of mass violence in the early Eastern Roman Empire. This is really the case with Justinian's rule overall. We have multiple accounts written by people who lived through these events. Most of them were written not too long after they happened, so it's not a case of like, we have two accounts of this and they were written 200 years later. Sometimes these accounts disagree with one another, but other times they more fill in the gaps in each other's perspectives. A quick rundown
2: of the most cited accounts of the Nika riots. First is the Chronicle of Marcellinus. Marcellinus was a retired public official who had been in service to Justinian while his uncle Justin was still the emperor. Marcellinus died around two years after the riots took place. Another account is by John Malalas, who died around 578. He was originally from Syria, and he compiled an 18-volume history of the empire that spanned from creation to about 565. Another John, this is John the Lydian, was an administrator, and he described the riots in his writing, De Magistratibus, which he wrote sometime after 551. He died in about 565. And then Victor of Tanuna also wrote a brief account before he died in 570.
0: And then there's Procopius, who died sometime after 565. Procopius wrote a lot about the Eastern Roman Empire during Justinian's reign, and his work is really a key source of information about the empire and these years of its history. This included the history of the wars in eight volumes, buildings, which took six volumes, and the secret history. And Procopius was uniquely placed in terms of being able to document this history— he was an advisor and secretary to the general Belsarius and was with Belisarius during multiple military campaigns. This included some work before the Nica riots. Uh, also, it's possible that Procopius was sheltering in the imperial palace during the actual riots. But Procopius's descriptions of Justinian and Theodora
2: vary from one work to another. Buildings, which documents Justinian's public works projects, was probably a commissioned work, and it doesn't really mention Theodora much, but it's generally favorable toward Justinian. But his history of the wars and secret history, which include his accounts of the Nika riots, are far more critical. Secret history in particular was framed as kind of a tell-all, as you might guess from the name, containing all the scandals and secrets that were too damning to be revealed when anyone involved was alive. That work was published posthumously.
0: The secret history is one of the big sources for the most scandalous things anyone has ever said about Theodora. He describes Theodora as a courtesan, quote, "...and such as the ancient Greeks used to call a common one at that, for she was not a flute or a harp player, nor was she even trained to dance, but only gave her youth to anyone she met in utter abandonment." He describes her as shameless and promiscuous and performing stage acts that involved bestiality, Secret History even argues that Justinian and Theodora were demons in human form. Sure, sure.
2: <laughs> Even with all of that in mind, Procopius's work is seen as a major source of information about Justinian's reign and about the events of 532 specifically. Sometimes it's approached in conjunction with the writing of John Malalas, since Procopius wrote about the riots from the side of the emperor and his administration, and John Malalas's account represents more of what was happening with the common people.
0: So... When Justinian came to power in 527, he wanted to restore the empire to what he saw as its former glory. As we said earlier, he envisioned the empire as one orthodox Christian entity, which meant cracking down on other religions and on unorthodox or so-called heretical teachings. He forbade pagans and heretics from teaching, and he outlawed homosexuality. Starting in 528, he embarked on a project to massively revise the law and to reform how the courts operated. And this was to make the courts more efficient and to make litigation more affordable. This legal reform and the laws associated with it collectively became known as the Code of Justinian.
2: This fed into Justinian's effort to root out corruption and curb waste. Although he conceived of all of this as being for the public good, some of these measures were unpopular and alienated both the aristocracy and the common people. And that was complicated by Justinian's military campaigns. In addition to fighting a series of border disputes with Persia, Justinian tried to reconquer areas that had previously been part of the Roman Empire. These wars were expensive, and the Praetorian Prefect, John of Cappadocia, levied new taxes to pay for them. These taxes were, of course, also unpopular, as were cost-cutting measures meant to help pay for all of this. So, John of
0: Cappadocia was deeply reviled. On January 10th, 532, a fight broke out between the Greens and the Blues. Don't really know exactly what prompted this fight, but it was happening in the context of all of that stuff that we just said. Seven men were arrested, and the city prefect, Udeman, found them guilty of murder and sentenced them to death. This was an attempt to try to deter future violence. The men were supposed to be executed on the other side of a body of water known as the Golden Horn. Five of the convicted men were
2: executed, but as the last two were about to be hanged, the scaffold collapsed. It's not clear exactly why this happened, but spectators interpreted it as a sign that God had spared those men. Monks took them back across the Golden Horn and gave them sanctuary at the Church of St. Lawrence. Eudemon's troops stood guard outside, effectively turning this sanctuary into a prison.
0: One of these men was a green and the other was a blue. So as we said, this was not remotely the first time that there had been violence between these factions. And since outbreaks of violence were also common during events at the Hippodrome, it might have made sense to cancel the upcoming chariot races that were scheduled for January 13th. But Justinian allowed them to go on and the crowd did what it always did during the chariot races, which is to shout a bunch of demands at the emperor. In this case, the crowd was demanding that the emperor pardon these two men.
2: Justinian ignored these demands. There were
0: 24 races
2: scheduled that day, and as they went on, the crowd became increasingly angry and agitated. And after the 22nd race, the Blues and the Greens dropped their rivalry and started chanting things like, Long live the merciful Blues and Greens! as well as Nika, Nika, Nika. Nika was a common cheer during these races, and it's usually translated as win or victory or conquer. Usually, this was something that each faction would chant at its own charioteers, but at this point, the two factions joined up, and they started shouting it at the emperor.
0: This was at least the third time that the Blues and the Greens had joined forces. The same thing had happened in 515 or 516, when the two factions had fought back against soldiers. They had destroyed a number of buildings in Constantinople in the process. In 520, the factions had come together to demand that the Emperor Justin appear in the Hippodrome to answer their demands, and that's something that he ultimately did. So, teaming up together could sometimes be effective. In this case,
2: though, Justinian continued to refuse the crowd's demands, and he and Theodora left the Hippodrome through the tunnel back to the Imperial Palace. This, of course, did not help to calm the situation. Members of the crowd went to the praetorium where the prefect Eudemon lived and demanded the two men be freed. When Udemon refused to free them, the crowd set the praetorium on fire. This was also not unprecedented. As one example, the praetorium had previously been burned down in 408 during a protest against a grain shortage. The crowd liberated some prisoners who were being held at the praetorium, and it is possible that they liberated the two convicted partisans at this point. But their fate is a little unclear.
0: Get it. There's stopped being references to their demanding that the men be freed at at this point, but there's vagueness in that aspect of it. This kicked off days of rioting and arson. In the words of Procopius, quote, fire was applied to the city as if it had fallen under the hand of an enemy. Justinian tried to return to the Hippodrome on the 14th, and when he got there, the United Greens and Blues issued new demands. These demands included firing Eudemon, along with John of Cappadocia, who was hated because of all those taxes, and a man named Trebonian, who was a senior legal official Although Justinian did fire all three of these men, he still didn't pardon the two convicted men. They may have been released at this point, but people still wanted a formal pardon. So this did not diffuse the situation. Violence
2: continued all over Constantinople, and on the 15th, the crowd decided to elevate a new emperor. At least some of this was instigated by more powerful people who saw this whole thing as an opportunity to get rid of Justinian and his anti-corruption campaigns. They looked to the nephews of the late emperor Anastasius for a successor. The older two who would have had the strongest claim to the throne were Hypatius and Pompey, but they were both in the imperial palace with Justinian. So the crowd went to the home of Anastasius's youngest nephew, Probus. Probus was not home. It is possible that he had heard about this and he wanted no part of
0: it and he just booked it. He fled. But when the mob found that he wasn't home, they burned his house down. So by this point, in addition to Probus's house... Rioters had burned down the Praetorium, part of the Hippodrome, the Senate House, and various churches and ceremonial buildings. Justinian didn't really have a police force that he could call to try to deal with this dissent. He was basically trying to cobble together a fighting force from members of the military who had no clear allegiance to the Greens or the Blues or any of the rioters or any of the aristocrats who were now trying to work this situation to their own ends. As part of this, Justinian summoned troops from Thrace, who arrived on the night of the 17th. He also
2: dismissed Hypatius and Pompey from the imperial palace. It's not clear why he did this. He may have felt that their presence was a threat, but as long as they were in the palace, the mob couldn't publicly try to raise one of them as emperor, so there are some conflicting things going on there.
0: Yeah. On the 18th, Justinian made one more appearance at the Hippodrome, He told the assembled people that he should have considered their demands and he offered to pardon the rioters. And while some people thought this was enough, others still refused to back down. On January 19th, 532, the crowd, who were still dissatisfied with what Justinian was doing, declared that Hypatius would be the new emperor. They did that in the Hippodrome. At that point, Justinian
2: prepared to flee the city and... We'll resolve this mini cliffhanger after we have a little sponsor break.
1: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Annabay. Annabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget friendly prices.
0: It was Theodora who convinced Justinian not to flee from Constantinople when the rioters tried to raise another man as emperor. He reported that she told him, quote, "...the present time, above all others, is inopportune for flight, even though it brings safety. For while it is impossible for a man who has seen the light not also to die, for one who has been an emperor, it is unendurable to be a fugitive." May I never be separated from this purple, and may I not live that day on which those who meet me shall not address me as mistress. If now it is your wish to save yourself, O oh Emperor, there is no difficulty, for we have much money, and there is the sea, and here are the boats. However, consider whether it will not come about after you have been saved, that you would gladly exchange that safety for death. As for myself, I approve a certain ancient saying that royalty is a good burial shroud. This is usually framed as
2: Theodora persuading Justinian because she was convincing and astute or Justinian being shamed into it because he was weak and indecisive. Either way, Justinian dispatched Belisarius and an Illyrian general named Mundus to the Hippodrome to put down the uprising. They split up and they entered from opposite sides, essentially trapping the greens and the blues in the Hippodrome. Justinian's fighting force then massacred roughly 30,000 people. That would have been about 10% of the population.
0: Justinian did not stop there. He had both Hypatius and Pompey executed, along with aristocrats who had backed Hypatius' as emperor. A number of high-ranking senators had been somewhat involved in all of this, and Justinian exiled all of them and seized all of their estates in the process. That wound up stripping the Senate of a lot of its power and authority. Once Justinian and Theodora regained control of the city, Justinian reinstated all the officials that he had previously fired. From there, Justinian started
2: on a massive rebuilding project. One of his most notable elements was the Hagia Sophia. This church had originally been ordered by the Emperor Constantine I, and it had been through several cycles of construction, damage during unrest, and rebuilding. Justinian envisioned the rebuilt Hagia Sophia as massive and architecturally groundbreaking. It was the empire's largest church with a domed basilica, marble columns, and elaborate mosaics. This is one of the earliest and largest uses of pendentives to support a dome. Pendentives are a little bit tricky to describe, but imagine a triangular piece of the surface of a sphere. If you connect the corners of four of these at the tops of four walls, they create a circular support for a dome to go above them.
0: This church took six years to build, and it was hugely influential in the architecture of the Eastern Roman Empire after this point. Although most of the mosaics have not survived until today, most of the structure does still stand, although part of the dome had to be rebuilt after an earthquake in 558. The building became a mosque in the 15th century, and then it was turned into a museum in the 20th century. In 2020, the Turkish government converted it back into a mosque. After the Nica riots,
2: Justinian also resumed his efforts to try to reunify the Roman Empire and restore its former territory. This included invasions into Africa in 533 and 534 and into Italy and parts of Spain starting in 535. This was not only about the expansion or reclamation of territory, it was also about coming to the aid of Orthodox Christians who were being persecuted. His other projects included establishing a silk industry in Constantinople using silkworms that had been smuggled out of China.
0: The empire was fighting on multiple fronts when a plague epidemic struck in 541. This is known today as Justinian's Plague or the Justiniac Plague. This plague has come up on so many installments of Unearthed as researchers have explored just how destructive the epidemic was, how far it spread, and exactly what strain of plague was involved.
2: The Empress Theodora died on June 28, 548. She was in her late 50s. After her death, Justinian seems to have turned his focus more toward theological matters and away from governance. He died on November 14, 565, at the age of 83
0: chariot racing eventually fell out of favor and the Nika riots seemed to be the last time that the greens and the blues united together against the emperor I have so many
2: feelings about this
0: Um, do you have listener mail that involves hopefully less massacring Yeah, there's no massacre in this email. It's from Brita, and Brita says, Hi, Holly and Tracy, I love your show, and I really loved your recent episode on unicorns. My dog is actually named after one of the many mythical beasts whose name is sometimes translated as unicorn. I got really excited in the episode when you mentioned the Chilin, because I thought you might mention the creature my dog is named after— If you've ever been to an East Asian temple or palace, you may have seen a pair of lion or dog-like statues stationed on either side of the entrance. In Korea, this guardian statue is called a hetei or a hitchi, and is described as a lion with a horn on its forehead or a unicorn lion. When I first moved to South Korea over a decade ago, the city of Seoul had a cartoon haechee as its mascot, I thought it was cute and that Hitchie would make a good dog name. Now, many years later, I'm back living in the U.S. and I have my own little Hitchie. He doesn't have a horn, but he does take his job of guarding the door very seriously. Here are a few pictures so you can see how much my dog Hitchie resembles or not his namesake. And there is a picture from a Buddhist temple in Seoul and then one with the mascot that was referenced. Uh, And then, of course... A dog, the cutest puppy. I'm just saying, he could have a a horn at Halloween if you celebrate it and wish. Or maybe he has a horn. He's just very shy about showing it to anyone. There you go. It's it's uh, it's covered up. It's hidden. So thank you so much for this email and these pictures. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or history podcast at iheartradio.com, and then we're all over social media at Missing History where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, or Instagram. And uh, you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.